Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way, Charlie U A I. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie UAI. I hope to see you there. I'm extremely excited to welcome today's guest to the podcast. He writes one of the best blogs on the internet about putting ML into production, aptly named ML in production. And he works at 2U as a data scientist. Please welcome Luigi Petruno. Luigi, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Thanks a lot, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here. And by when I say that you have the best blog about the subject, I mean, you really do. It's, it's so detailed. It goes way beyond anything else that's, that's on there. Everything else is like cursory. Here's a Flask API that you can make and deploy. But you actually really dig into monitoring, deploying all the really hard stuff that no one else really talks about. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's uh, very flattering. When I started the blog, it was really with a goal of digging deep into these topics and, and to dig deep specifically into these topics and to stay away from many of the topics that most folks online talk about, which I'd classify as either beginner content or algorithms related information. I wanted to really focus on the topics that were related to what you would need to know when doing this sort of work in industry and in production, not in academia or in, on a CAGL competition. And the reason for that is because that's what I do in my day-to-day, and that's what I find valuable, and I couldn't find 
information and resources that were really focused on those topics. So I thought, why not start writing about those things myself? Yeah, exactly. And it's a really similar reason to why I started this podcast as well in terms of I listened to a lot of podcasts and I just couldn't find one that had any information on what I do in in my day-to-day job. So I decided that I wanted to talk to people like you who actually have the information and uh, can spread it as widely as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great reason to to start any media-related venture like a podcast or a blog. Yeah. So to get right into it, because your story has already been covered pretty well in the Datacast episode that you did, so I'll direct listeners to there. Link in will be in the description. Say that an ML team has just been doing things pretty ad hoc. They have they've developed a few models with their data scientists. They have most of that just stored in S3, and they deploy it maybe with simple APIs that they've made. And they want, but they've realized that there are some problems. They're doing maybe monitoring by customer complaint, as you call it. What should be their first step if they want to become more rigorous in how they do their engineering? Yeah, I think that's a pretty broad question. So there's a lot of different ways we can take that. Since you mentioned monitoring, we can talk a little bit about that. I would say that a lot of teams think about monitoring too late. And that's been my experience with some of the teams I've been a part of where monitoring only becomes a concern after there's been some sort of issue where either a customer has complained or there's been some unplanned downtime and you realize, hey, I had this application that I'm running that's, of course, powered by machine learning, but at the end of the day, it's still a software application. And I need to be able to understand the behavior of this application when it's at risk of going down or when it actually is down or when there's some sort of irregularity that needs to be diagnosed. So I'm actually going through this exercise right now at work for a particular product that we manage and run a production critical application. And what I'm doing there is we're starting with looking at the application holistically and thinking through what are the metrics that we want to be able to visualize and understand on a daily basis and going through the application and looking through exactly where those metrics would need to be admitted from. So for instance, if you're, and this really depends on the context, both of the business problem and domain, as well as the type of models that you're using. So there's no really one size fits all, like you need to log this or you need to not log that, this or that metric. I think it really depends on exactly what metrics are important to your application and your models and what's important to the business at hand. And on top of that, this is, this is very standard practice for typical software engineering teams that are running web-based applications and especially for DevOps teams. Another concept that has become a a bit more on vogue is this concept of uh, observability, where you don't know a priori which metrics you might care about, but you want to be able to understand the sort of context of an application or what was going on at particular times so that you can debug issues even when you don't have specific metrics that you were able to plan beforehand. So thinking through, I think the logging is very important, right? That's something that most data scientists don't have much experience with, but becomes very important for when you're developing applications, right? What are the log messages that I'm emitting? What's the severity level of those logs? What context do I present in those log messages? Because you might think that logs are helpful when you're debugging, when you're first building the application, but they become way more helpful when you're diagnosing errors once your applications have gone into production. Right. So 
we're right now taking a holistic look, not just at the metrics that we want to emit, but also the log messages that we want to emit to ensure that there's appropriate context contained within those logs. So if there are issues that we find later on down the road, we can just take a look at our sort of centralized logs rather than thinking through the flow of the application and trying to develop the context either within our heads or through some examples. So I think in in terms of monitoring, I would say you want to, ideally you'd like to do this before you deploy your application into production. Of course, if you deploy it and it's running and then you run into an issue, you have to do it. But by that point, you've already run into some sort of customer issues. Before you deploy this into production, think through monitoring, think through the issues that might occur. Think through what sort of context you would like to be able to see if there was an issue that occurred, both in terms of log messages you want to read and also just diagnostic metrics that you could you know, emit beforehand. So for instance, if you have a regression model, you might just want to emit the outputs of the model. And that way you could at least see trailing averages over the over some trailing window of time to see whether or not the uh, prediction outputs from your model basically align with what you expect them to. And, and there's a number of things you can emit. That those, that's just one example. If you have a classification problem, obviously you can emit the class probabilities if you have those or just the the chosen class if you have that the number of predictions that you're emitting per time period, you sort of, there, I would say that there's a level in terms of the types of metrics you emit, whether they're strictly operational or based on the applications, more like APM metrics. And then you can go further up the stack and think more about machine learning specific metrics, such as what's the average prediction that the model is producing. And you can even go further in terms of once you actually uh, retrieve the actual targets for those predictions, can you tie those back to your model predictions and then actually determine rigorously how are the models performing? But that, of course, is dependent on whether on how quickly you observe the targets for your problem. So it's pretty pretty long-winded answer I just gave, but there's a, a lot of specific issues that you can think through and plan for. And I'd suggest doing that before you deploy your model so that you can have something to look at once, you, once there are issues. Yeah, and... It... Like you said, it's uh, that it was long of an answer. It's because there are so many things that people don't tend to think about, especially if they're coming right from school, like I was, where I hadn't really done much rigorous engineering. Or if you're coming from a data science background, again, you you might have done a master's, research-based master's. You're not someone who knows about logging, knows about APM. What might be an example of, you said logs are extremely important. What might be an example of log messages that someone who doesn't have that engineering background might not think about in an ML system? Yeah, great question. First of all, you're right. If you're coming from straight out of school, first of all, I did a computer science degree. I had a minor in CS as an undergraduate and then did a master's in CS. And I would say my master's was pretty much focused on software engineering rather than machine learning. I took some machine learning classes, but that really wasn't the emphasis of my program. And it was mostly engineering. And even there, I didn't learn much about logging. What I learned about logging was from working in industry. So it is not, it's not typical that people who, who even do degrees learn about these concepts, unless I, I would say they've really taken some classes that absolutely focus on software engineering that are most likely taught by practitioners. And not to say anything, of course, of data scientists or, or people who don't study CS where logging is not even a thought. But I would say, typically, I'd say folks develop 
junior folks developing software most likely have experience with logging in terms of debugging their applications as they're building them. Maybe they want to see if they run a particular function that certain outputs are printed out or, or there's certain context there. And that's very useful. But one thing you want to be able to do, for instance, when you're debugging an issue is understand the context as it was during some particular session of runtime. So for instance, you might have a request that comes in. Let's take a web service as an example. You might have a request that comes in and the request has particular metadata associated to it. And now the functions within your code base will do different things, of course, depending on that context and depending on that metadata. So you'd like to be able to understand what that metadata is during the flow of the request from the web service, uh, because that's going to dictate what exactly happens. And if you don't have that context, you won't understand the flow of the application flow, for instance. There was this request and then there was this request. And one thing you definitely don't want to be doing is trying to understand the flow of logic by using the order of the log statements themselves. And that's and, and that's something that very typically happens because folks who aren't work, used to working in uh, distributed environments or environments where code is expected to run in a parallelized state, because when you're debugging on your laptop, things in order. There's only one request coming in. It's from yourself. There's only a, a subset of log messages and it's from the things you just did. So you don't have all that extra noise that you will have once the application is running in production. And sort of the more clusters you have it running on, the more parallel users are using the application, the more and more convoluted those log messages uh, become. So you really want to have context there that enables you to understand exactly what the parameters were at runtime to be able to debug a particular situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And that's a really good point about not about thinking about it from the perspective of that it would be run asynchronously if it is that web server. This is something that I recently learned the hard way in debugging in Python async program. So how would you, what would be the alternative to that in terms of determining, being able to determine the program flow? Would you have logs per a thread ID or how would, I don't know if that's a little bit uh, too technical to get into, but... Uh, it might be too technical to go like too deep into, but at the end of the day, yeah, you need some identifiers that are telling you information. Perhaps if there's a request that's about a particular user and you have access to a user ID, you want to use that user ID. Of course, the story changes if you don't have a concept of a logged in user, but at that point you may generate something like a session ID and hope that session ID persists across session, across web requests if that's the case. So it really comes down to thinking through what the level of what your unit is in your application. Is it at the user or is that a visitor or uh, some other level of granularity and thinking through how to identify that particular, that unit. And if you can identify that unit very consistently across requests, if that's the case, then you're going to have a much easier time debugging your application and understanding what may have gone wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. For the monitoring part with metrics, you talked a little about a bit about how obviously it's going to depend on what type of problem is it is. If it's regression, it's going to be a lot different than classification. How would you think about, is there some resource that you would use to determine, okay, it's this type of problem. This is a list of the metrics that we might want to have. Does that exist? Or is that uh, just something that you have to think really hard about at, for each case? Yeah, I would say that you certainly have to think hard about that. There are probably some online resources. I'm, I know I've come across online resources 
titled something along the lines of like metrics you must measure for particular types of models. I can't think of a, a specific example off the top of my head, but typically always being able to uh, output the model's prediction plus metadata about the model itself. So you want to be able to identify the model, right? So if your model has, a, has an ID associated with it, let's just pretend there's just a single ID. You want to be able to say, this user used this model and saw this prediction, right? Because once you have uh, that information, you can compute a lot of things further downstream. So setting yourself up to have the, again, to have the necessary context so that you can compute what you need later on down the road is, is a best practice, I would say. Now, of course, there's also, there are a lot of vendor tools emerging in the monitoring space that take care of this for you, right? Where they encapsulate the best practices in terms of exactly which metrics to measure. So that's another alternative. Rather than trying to develop these things yourself, you can use a vendor solution that encompasses these best practices. And that is definitely something I recommend where as much as possible, we want to use uh, third-party services for these questions because these questions are commoditized in the sense that any team that's deploying models needs to worry about having metrics for their models. So you don't want to be reinventing the wheel and you really want to be focusing on the types of questions that are very unique to your business and that you need to solve because those are the differentiators that actually generate value. If, if you're building and deploying models at, at Workday and I'm building and deploying models at 2U, there's really no sense in, in for us to both be thinking specifically about what classification metrics we want to emit. If we can just send some money to a third party and get that for free, then you can focus on the questions that are specific to Workday and that are important to Workday. And I can focus on those questions that are specific to you because nobody except my team is working on those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really great point about figuring out where you are adding value specifically to your business and where, like you said, that thing can be commoditized. And you have a really great article that kind of hits on this point about how do you actually add business value with machine learning? I know I fell into this trap where you see a problem that's given to you and say, oh, we can use this really cool state-of-the-art transformer right away and we'll just, we'll do this. It'll have amazing accuracy. And I think this is a trap that a lot of people fall into where they don't think about how this is going to either increase revenue or how it's going to decrease costs for the company itself. And they go right into, let's solve the hardest problem we can because we have a research background and that's what we are trained to do. How, what advice would you give to someone who has that mindset? Like how would they orient themselves more towards thinking about the business and what would be the different actions that it would take in that process sure. given that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And this is one of those things that I think data scientists and machine learning engineers would probably find more sat many, many of them who are experiencing dissatisfaction, I think would, would, would experience more satisfaction in their careers if they sort of understood this point. And um, I think the story, you know, I fell into the same trap when I was an individual contributor, you know, now I'm managing a, a department. Uh, but when I was an individual contributor, I was focused really on the scientific question and the technical research question. And I wanted to try out the latest and greatest, mostly because I'm a nerd and I find those things interesting. It's, you know, I got part of the reason I got into data science was because I just found it so cool that you can predict things and that there was really fancy sort of complicated algorithms that can give you insights that no human could potentially uh, generate on his or her own. But the story really changed uh, a bit when I went into management and probably a little bit before that, just from me starting my own blog, which is my own business. 
and thinking in terms of how much time and money am I spending on this and what is the payoff that I'm getting, right? In terms of my blog articles, I am very focused on putting out just the most uh, valuable and helpful material to get people who are actually working in the field value. I don't care about clicks for clicks sake. And I would much rather have a, a short, I would, I would much rather have two or three short articles that are really po- on, on, you know, pointed and, and about a particular topic than I would like 20 articles that are all discussing like fads and latest and greatest things that, you know, potentially in one month's time aren't going to be very important or are just fluff material. So if you take that same sort of perspective in, into your machine learning work, you can either have, typically you can use some small subset of algorithms that work pretty well, are very well understood, might be simple, might not be exciting, but do the job well. Or you can have an entire huge class of algorithms that are more exciting in certain ways, but at the end of the day can actually be considered fluff from a sort of business perspective. And what I mean by that is, you know, even in terms of uh, some accuracy, you might have a model that does well enough and definitely gets the business results but you want to squeeze out some more predictive performance. So you do something a little bit more complex at the expense of maybe making the models uninterpretable, hard to explain, harder to debug, needing more machinery around deploying and monitoring it. And while that latter algorithm might be more exciting in terms of business results, you're putting a lot more input there for the output that you're getting out. So thinking in terms of achieving the results as efficiently as possible even at the expense of using something that may not be as interesting as a complicated neural network or you know any other sort of you know GANs or any other class of algorithm that you might be interested in using. While it may be a little bit less interesting to do that, you'll have better results typically from a business perspective just because you're doing something more efficiently. So at the end of the day, people need to remember, I think people need to keep in mind that the machine learning part of a company is still just part of a company, right? And what a company is trying to do is, is hit its its business KPIs and its business metrics. So if the machine learning enterprise is not contributing to those business metrics, then it's net negative rather than a net positive. And to the extent possible, you want to be a positive. Yeah, it seems like uh, there are more and more organizations who are seeing this uh, hubbub, so to speak, about machine learning and for either marketing reasons or for, I don't know, recruiting reasons or some other, they want to get in on the machine learning hype train, even if it doesn't strictly, like you say, add that much value. Uh, I don't know if it was in one of your articles or someone else's, but you said that, or the article said that quite often, it's actually a net negative because like you said, you might not have that interpretability that you had before with your more rule-based systems, or there's a, or again, ML people are very expensive to, to actually have. What kind of would there be some criteria that you would have for like a company where you would be able to say ml definitely can add value and it's worth having a specific entire team dedicated to it and i know it's kind of a broad question no it's Uh, an important question though and uh i think this really gets to the heart of a lot of my beliefs where there are certain problems where you definitely want to use machine learning then there are certain problems where you almost definitely do not want to use machine learning and a lot of things fall in the middle. I, I wrote a newsletter uh, article pretty recently in the last couple of weeks 
basically describing companies as to falling into one of two categories. Either this company does machine learning as a core competency in the sense that the company wouldn't exist without machine learning, or at least would cease to be the company it is. And then there are those companies that do machine learning, but not as a core competency. And I actually work at one of those companies where it's not a core competency. And in those companies, the machine learning is used essentially to perhaps add more features to products or to improve operations, make operations more efficient in some way. And when you're thinking about which problems to tackle from from an ML perspective, if your problem can reliably be solved with a rules-based system, and and even if there's some sort of uh, error with that rules-based system, I think you want to do that first. Now, you may need to evolve that system later on. And if you've instrumented that application properly with the right logs and the right metrics, you'll actually generate a data set along the way, whereas where later on you may be able to apply machine learning. So in that sense, something that you can get pretty far with just rules, I'd suggest starting with those rules. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there are problems, for example, ranking pro- search ranking problems or computer vision problems where you really won't be able to get anywhere without some sort of learning component. Aside from those two classes of problems, at the ends of the expre- at the ends of the extremes, you then have those problems in the middle. And things I think you need to think about are how important is it going to be to understand the outputs, how the inputs relate to the outputs, right? The, this question of explainability and interpretability, um, and what's the trade-off in terms of the resources spent versus the potential gain, right? Because the thing with machine learning is, if there's if there's one guarantee. It's that you're going to have to spend a lot of money on trying to solve the problem. So if you're going to have to spend a lot of money on trying to solve the problem, and when I say a lot of money, you're going to have to pay expensive employees who are potentially going to have to embark on a a project or series of projects where it's strictly impossible to be able to predict whether or not you'll have success from the outset. If you're going to work on those problems and they're expensive, the payoff better be very high, right? Because if you're working on those problems, but the payoff is minimal, then even if you you know, successfully achieve your outcomes, you're not really generating much value there. Focus on problems where the potential for value is large scale. And that way you can justify the expenditure of, of time and money into for the resources needed to actually work on that problem. Mm-hmm. That's a really great answer. Let's say that you have a... I, I, I like the dichotomy, first of all, between the two different types of corporations, one which has that as a core competency and one that is perhaps trying to get into that sort of category. And in my limited experience, having worked in in this field, it seems like it's such a struggle to for a company to get to that buy-in from the rest of the organization because ML is so, or to make ML effective, it takes so much so many different things that have to align in different parts of the stack of your application. You said that, for example, search ranking problems and really anything that involves feedback from your from any UX signal, that needs to those sensors need to be put in there from the very start and collecting data throughout the application. And you have to have again that involves having some sort of centralized data store and feedback loops throughout all of that. So it's a really I guess I think people have a difficult time of convincing others that uh, ML is worth having that burden on not only talent inside an ML organization, but spreading throughout throughout the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. 
you know, if, well, first of all, if you want to do any machine learning, you need data, right? So if your application isn't already, if you're not already collecting this data or your application isn't already emitting it, then you're going to have to instrument this thing and start collecting that data. And it might take some time uh, until the data is, is available. But there's there's a pretty famous sort of uh, diagram. I think it's called the, the AI hierarchy of, of needs or something along those lines. It was created by a data scientist. Her name is uh, Monica Rigotti. So you, you can look this up for your listeners. And essentially, it's, a, it's just a pyramid or a triangle. And there's different levels of things that you should do before you're building deep learning models. Deep learning models are like the apex or complicated machine learning models are the apex of, of this triangle or this pyramid. And at the very base, and I don't remember the exact ordering, but there are things just like instrumenting your applications with logs, being able to compute basic summary statistics or descriptive statistics, discussing particular outcomes, describing particular outcomes, enabling experimentation, right? A-B testing, multi-armed bandits, what have you. Then getting into sort of basic machine learning algorithms, maybe traditional things like linear regressions or some trees, and then getting into more complicated things. So what this sort of hierarchy guarantees you is that you have the outputs necessary to get to those higher levels. So if you want deep learning, you need a lot of data. You can't have a lot of data unless your your application is already instrumented. You've been thinking through descriptive statistics. You have some ideas about the outcomes that you're trying to predict the proxy metrics that you want to predict and how they're tied to your sort of long-term KPIs. And I think this is a very uh, useful way about thinking of the maturity level of your organization. Have you, do you have all of those bases or do you have none of those bases or have you skipped certain layers? Because what you'll find, and this is actually what I've found throughout my career, is that it's tempting to go straight to the top, right? Or, or even close to the top and start doing machine learning models. But what you're going to find is if you don't have an experimental layer, for example, you won't be able to verify whether your machine learning models are having the or achieving the outcomes that you want to have, right? Because you won't be able to experiment with different models and determine which one is actually having a positive impact on your user base. So I'd really suggest taking a look at this hierarchy, this AI hierarchy of needs and thinking through whether your organization, you know, has checked off the boxes on those lower layers or whether you've skipped straight to the top, because eventually you'll find that then you'll need to go back down. Right. So it pays to think about these things holistically. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. I'm definitely going to have to look that up and think about that more because it seems like in, I know people who've had this experience where they're working in a company that goes, like you said, right to the top. It's a pretty tempting thing to do. And if you have multiple teams who are doing this without having the base of that pyramid, what ends up happening is each one builds those sort of platforms that are, that go underneath them. And none of them are able to talk to each other because it's just all different teams making their own experimental platforms and making their own monitoring solutions. So it, it ends up, instead of being a pyramid, it's more of like a house of cards that could fall at, uh, at any given point. So that's right. a, a really great analogy. Yeah. And you, and you brought up this question of having influence within an organization and getting people to buy in to, to making this investment. And I think that's also a very important point and, and, and one that I've written about like pretty recently, actually, because these are, are questions that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about right now in terms of where I'm at in my, at this particular point in my career. And I will say that it's hard to do that convincing when you have an older company that has gotten to where it is today without the use of complicated analytics. Whereas if you're starting a company today that's brand new, and you have a data scientist as part of the founding team, 
this person is going to be thinking about these types of issues from the get-go, right? So one, I think, pretty good example of this is something like a company like Stitch Fix, where Stitch Fix is a very new company, relatively speaking. And when the company was founded, there were machine learning people, data science people that were part of the sort of founding team. And the former, I think, chief algorithms officer at Stitch Fix, his name is Eric Coulson. And Eric Coulson wrote some nice articles on the Stitch Fix blog and then as part of the Harvard Business Review, talking specifically about having a data science seat at the table at the highest levels, because that is what's necessary to do the sort of holistic work that's necessary to enable value add from machine learning, because there are just so many steps to take. So if you don't have that seat at the table, it's going to be very difficult to have enough influence on the organization to make the investments required, you know, in order to, to generate that value, because a lot of requestment, a lot of investment is required from the get-go, right? So you're going to be sinking money into this problem before you start generating a lot of value. But if you don't sink the right amount of resources into this, you'll never start getting that value. And folks like Andrew Ng have spent some amount of their time discussing this concept at length, where they discuss how can you start convincing your organization to make these bigger investments. And some of the advice that's generally given is focus on sort of small problems where you can get quick wins and then focus on evangelizing those wins to different teams and different parts of your organizations so that you can demonstrate that you're able to add value rather than just go out on these sort of fishing expeditions like a lot of science experiments wind up becoming. Yeah, and that's interesting, the part about the having the small project to get that quick win. And it does seem like it's a great way to conv- just to show them the like a little bit of that potential so that they can start to build the base of that pyramid of having all of your having all that data be available and having people in the throughout the organization thinking of in that like data first way. I know that it's in Again, in the business value with ML article, it mentions how you need to have people thinking of ML at from the very start, from those UX designers to your PMs, all the way down the line into like DevOps. And even if you have hardware engineers, they need to be thinking about this. So it really is something that goes that it requires so much investment. And like you said, those the small projects are a great way of probably getting buy-in. Yeah, it's a, it's really a full stack question. Right. I tend to think about machine learning as a, or let's say advanced analytics, data science, whatever, as a full stack exercise, because you need inputs at sort of all levels. You need product inputs are arguably some of the most important. Uh, You need inputs from uh, user interface, user experience, design. Clearly, you need inputs from statistics and machine learning itself. You need inputs from the engineering side of the organization. So it's, it it is very much a cross-disciplinary across disciplinary field and you need to be able to talk to some extent with folks from all parts of these organizations and and get input and buy-in from all of these folks so it's by no means a a sort of simple thing and and that's that's pretty much precisely why it's it requires a lot of investment because you need to be able to convince all these people and you need to also be able to work with all of these people to have any sort of outcome and and even though the advice is well start with something small that doesn't make the exercise any simpler Right. Because at the end of the day, then you still need to pick what is this small thing. And 
if I were to give a recommendation there, it would be the better able you are to tie this project to profit and loss, the more dramatic the impact of the project has the potential to be. Because if you can demonstrate, hey, we can generate more money or, hey, we can save more money through this application, which requires machine learning, it wouldn't otherwise be possible without machine learning. That's how you start getting buy-in because you show senior people that, hey, we need this functionality. And if we have this functionality, we can start generating more revenue or, or, or saving shaving money off the bottom line. And that's how you start getting buy-in. And if you can't go straight to dollars and cents, then you should go towards optimizing sort of proxy metrics that the business already relies on and understands to be connected to profit and loss. All right. So whether that be user engagement or number of signups or time spent on page, whatever it is for your particular sort of organization. And, and that's very context. That's very domain specific. But the more dramatic impact you can have on one of those, one or more of those outcomes and connect that directly to the necessary use of advanced ML techniques, the I'd say the higher the chance that the company would be willing to continue to invest more and more into that into that practice. Yeah, tying it to the PNL again, it goes back to knowing the incentives of what the higher ups want in terms of yeah, like you said, there might be some proxy metrics that they they use to get that buy in for, so that you can start to integrate it in each part. And to shift gears a little bit, sure. because of the nature of that, of how full stack it is, something that Josh Tobin had brought up on a previous podcast that I had with him, he was saying about how tools are really the thing that link together each of those. So for example, if you had a like a UX designer and a and an ML person and the engineers and they all need to talk to each other, it's a tool that really is enables that super efficient communication. So they're not just like packing passing back and forth Slack messages and it's not visible to anyone. Mm-hmm. What do you, I know that you're, you have a course on SageMaker, but what do you think are the most exciting tools that you're seeing in, or maybe is that not even the right way to frame it uh, in terms of excitement, but rather usefulness? What kind of tools would, are you seeing that would be that are coming out? Yeah, I try to stay away from making specific tool recommendations. I won't bring up specific companies or specific vendors, either like open source or proprietary, because that's you know not the business I'm in. But I will say that, first of all, to go to Josh's comment, Josh, first of all, is a smart guy. He's a, he's a friend of mine. And we often have these like interesting conversations that I always walk away with thinking, like, oh, that was very insightful. I, I will say that this question of tools being a, a sort of intermediary between teams and enabling better better communication or efficiencies makes sense right because at the end of the day that's literally what that's the definition of technology almost right like it's science applied to make things more efficient so it it totally makes sense that these tools one way these tools can be used is as interfaces between people who speak different languages or as like translational layers so if you have machine learning which is this cross-disciplinary endeavor and you need to have a lot of communication with different teams one way of making the whole thing more efficient is to drive down the cost of communicating between these different teams and if tools can do and tools do that efficiently well does well let's say well-designed tools do that efficiently right so that makes a lot of sense the tools that are most helpful i think are the ones that target the biggest problems huge problems i think that companies uh, face are around things like data quality right so understanding 
the quality of your input data, understanding the quality of your output data, being able to generate alerts when uh, there are issues that come up in terms of data quality. And I think this is very important because the inputs, suppose you have some model that's in production, that's producing some outputs that are used to, to, to render some decisions downstream. The inputs to those models can come from any number of, of the sources, right? They may come directly from an online user request, in which case they would have most likely gone through some levels of validation, both in the front end and in the back end. And now you need to understand whether uh, there were any issues within these validations, or they may come from some directly from some database call, in which case you need to question how the data came to be within that source in the database. Was it produced from, did it come in from some incoming web request? Was it produced as an output of some daily batch jobs, which there might be some like huge pipeline of jobs that produce that output. So there is a, a, a lot of variance in terms of like where your data can be coming from. So your model is basically this sort of final layer in, in a graph of computations that's accepting all of this sort of very heterogeneous data. So the probability that there was some issue at some point within this huge graph, I'd say it's quite large right, or larger than we, we might like it to be. So having a good understanding of degradations in data quality, I think are, are super important and uh, will go a long ways in helping overcome the over the operational issues that a lot of ML teams are facing. Because I know this is, this is the case with, with teams I've worked on. We spend more time looking into data quality issues than we do thinking about how to actually improve the models or or iterate on the performance of the models that we already have in production. So any tools that are talking about data quality, I think are going to be very useful. If there's, I'd say that's probably, it's a boring answer, right? Because data quality is not something that a lot of people spend a lot of, want to spend a lot of time thinking about, but that's where the sausage is made at the end of the day. Yeah. Like you said, it's so boring, but it's, it is that most important part when a lot of people think that, again, coming back to people's academic backgrounds where they're working with a like MNIST data sets or other data sets that are just completely perfect, CIFAR, for example, you don't even have to, I mean, they're images, like they, they're not even, again, I guess it has its own problems with detecting data drift in images, it doesn't really make sense. But uh, in terms of having those perfect data sets and your models just work on them and you only have to worry about the model, but like you say, in real life machine learning, you're you do have such large data pipelines getting to those models. And I think it's a pretty common problem that the if your organization is not bought in completely, you're, as a machine learning engineer, you just get, say, a parquet file from a batch download, and that's what you work with. You don't even know what went into that. It's not versioned at all. How would you ideally set up something like that to solve that kind of problem. Can you say more? I'm not sure I, I fully get the the sort of setup. Sure. You said that you have a bunch of like data is going through a huge pipeline. Maybe you have a UX signal and then that's getting transformed. Maybe it goes to a warehouse uh, and then it's like batch download from that goes through some ETL. It seems like in a lot of places that pipeline is pretty opaque to the yep. people who are doing the machine learning itself what would you imagine ideally that would look like okay so that's a good question so if you have your model is, is essentially taking in inputs from all of these various sources 
you have you basically the, the parameter you have is how far up the pipeline do you want to be doing the data quality checks and the further back you go the more disparate sources of data you'll be working with and you might be working you might be questioning the data quality of outputs from some team that you don't even work with and so i would say at the end of the day you really want to stay as close to the model as possible so having an understanding of the quality of your your training set right which you do have a lot of control over understanding uh, the quality of that data set and coming up with sort of some set of constraints or understandings about what that data looks like and then comparing your future data to that data so when your model is finally deployed and you're seeing new inputs you want to check uh, in some way that these new inputs relates to your the training data sets that you use for your model so at uh, uh, that way you don't have to write a lot of logic or code to check all kinds of other inputs you're just focused on, on what you have control over now if your system does detect that there are issues you will have to do the sort of detective work of going and trying to figure out what those issues are but at the very least you can detect those issues without having to drive up the cost of of writing code for many different systems or talking to a lot of different people so keep your data checks i'd say as close to the model as possible because at the end of the day that's what you really care about the model outputs and if you can check the quality of the inputs immediately before being fed to the model you are you have a a much easier job of doing those data quality checks or those understanding the data quality Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, these data monitoring checks, it's part of the larger picture. It's like of monitoring in general of, of things that are running inside production. When you have a your training data distribution, maybe you have, a, I don't know, a feature and it has a known distribution of what it was like in the in your training set. How would you monitor that for drift in production? Would it be, again, this may be too specific of a question, but like, how do you determine thresholding for, for alerting? How do you determine when you might want to retrain given a more slowly drifting distribution? Sure. Yeah, these are various technical questions, and I'm certainly not an expert exactly on how to answer these questions most precisely. Again, I would say third-party vendors are set up to answer these questions explicitly. I I wrote a couple of blog posts with some folks from some of these vendor companies on my blog. I have some blog posts with folks at supervise.ai, as well as uh, Mona Labs, which are are, are two companies that are specifically working on this monitoring problems. And they gave some like excellent insights on these questions. So for example, in one of those blog posts, we talked specifically about detecting drift. And uh, the issue with drift is that it's sort of it's an overloaded operator. There are many different kinds of drift. You may have this like slow, gradual shift in distributions, which can which might point to actually that there are real changes happening in the underlying data distribution, or you might have all of a sudden like a very dramatic shift in data distribution, and that might actually have a higher likelihood of being an some sort of error that was introduced to the code base that's now uh, really dramatically changing the inputs to your model, right? So there are many different types of drift. And I think you need to have basically, it's basically some understanding of an anomaly detection on top of the outputs, on top of the inputs that are going into your model. My advice would be don't spend too much time trying to solve those problems. Again, go to vendors or go to open source tools if there are some to solve those problems, because those are rabbit holes. And you can spend, people spend entire careers and entire companies working on those problems. So you don't want to be reinvent, re, reinventing the wheel there. You really want to be taking advantage of 
commodity software or other tools that exist to solve those problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like those, like throughout our conversation so far, we've touched on things all the way from the business, all the way down to uh, like the ops layer, so to speak. And how, and these, all of these things are done by people who are called data scientists. Right. And of course, that's an extremely broad level. Do you think that we'll see more like partitioning of those exact career roles into, say, people who have machine learning knowledge who work with PMs versus people who work with the engineers versus ops? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I think, first of all, specialization just tends to happen, right? If you look at just economic development, roles become more and more specialized because they were optimizing for, for generating profits. So specialization will happen. I do think, though, that there, there's a question of the natural specialization that happens because some industry becomes further develops itself, and, and that's fine. But there's also the, I would say, what's one way of saying this? When the sort of noise just reduces and there is less hype in the field. And I think there's going to be some, when this hype is reduced, I tend to think of machine learning as just a methodology, some system of methodologies or some techniques. And I think a lot of software engineers, even if they don't, aren't data scientists or ML engineers would profit from an understanding of machine learning techniques, because maybe the same way that they profit from an understanding of graph algorithms or, or trees from just data structure. You need to know about these things because you at least want to be able to identify when to use them when a particular problem emerges. So similarly, if you see a particular type of problem, you want to be able to say, hey, I think machine learning can be applied here. So having some base level of understanding of the techniques is useful because you just want to be able to identify the best methodology to solve a particular problem. That said, I think same way, a lot of data scientists and ML engineers benefit from having an understanding of software engineering because if they're expected to build products, well, then we have a very good established methodology for building software products that's been developed over the last, let's say, 30 to 40 years in terms of, of web technologies and, and software development. I do, I do think there's going to be further specialization. I think that's just natural. But there's also going to be um, a bit of dispersion of this knowledge across different roles because hype will fall and companies that are building these products folks across the organization are going to need to at least be able to understand basic high-level concepts of machine learning. Yep. And this is a something that you talked about in your blog post on that extended the idea of Code 2.0 from Andre Carpathy, where software engineers in the future would essentially just be putting in the sensors and maybe having that initial rule-based system for users to then collect have data collected from them, which will drive those feedback loops, again, using those UX signals and being able to engineer what is being optimized exactly for. Right. How close do you think we are to a future like that? I think we're very far from that future, but that's a sort of, a, that was like a fun post for me to write because it is like, it's close enough to make some sense, but it's far out enough if you're actually working in the field to know that like, a lot is going to have to happen in order for us to get there. And I think the term I used in that post was like bootstrapping the system. We use traditional software engineers to bootstrap uh, the system, but really what their most important role is to instrument 
this first pass at the rule-based system with the right sensors so that we are able to retrieve and store the data that's being generated. And then the ML people will go in and actually replace the traditional software 1.0 with software 2.0 learning-based solutions, right? And and this is something I've spoken about with with a couple of people in the field where at the end of the day, if we're able to, we want to do things end to end. So if we have metrics from the business, product metrics or KPIs, whatever, and we can just basically uh, set those up and then the solutions can then build themselves specifically to optimize those product KPIs or those business metrics, that is truly like the ideal state. Because then, remember thinking, we're, we're thinking about this from a business perspective, right? So the business has some goals, has some aims, and that's at the highest level what it cares to achieve. Now, how it achieves those things is what people like me and you spend our time thinking about. But we're thinking about this in a bubble, right? Like we're, we're thinking about it in, through the machine learning lens. But really the executives are thinking about the goals that they want to achieve because that's going to achieve the mission of the company. If we can marry those two things, right? Or, br- or bring the business goals down and operate in terms of the business goals, that is really like what the goal is. Because at the end of the day, we're hired labor, right? Data scientists, machine learning engineers, are just our cogs in the machine. And I don't say that negatively. Literally, we are, we are, we're working and hired to achieve some goals that contribute to these high-level objectives. So instead of thinking about these, everything we think about are proxies for those higher-level objectives. So if we can, program, quote-unquote, program in the language of those objectives, we're, we're closer to achieving the business's goals. We're very far from that. I will say we are very far from that. Because even when you think about traditional software development, the people who are writing the code or writing, building the applications, many of the times almost don't even care about the business objectives. Like they're just interested in writing code. They're developers who, who like to do engineering. And I think that's dangerous. And I think that leads to a lot of misunderstandings between different teams like engineering and sales, where a lot of engineers think of salespeople as just like sales bros. And a lot of the, a lot of salespeople think of engineers just as nerds. And I don't, I'm not saying this is everybody, but at the end of the day, both of these teams are hired to help the company achieve its goals. So why there doesn't really make sense for there to be uh, like tribalism between these different teams. They, different, they have different skill sets. I wouldn't hire an engineer to do sales. I most likely wouldn't hire a salesman to, do, to, build, to build applications. That is just the specialization that's required to solve the business objectives. So my thinking behind that post is if we can bring those objectives to the layer of sort of engineering and just optimize directly for those things, well, then machine learning is really having a huge impact. But I think it's going to take a lot of there's a lot of work needed needing needed to be done to get there. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about. Like you said, it was fun to write. It was fun to read as well. It's it just opens your mind as to the possibility. There was a the tweet that you included from Andrew Carpley again is like gradient descent codes better than you. And you can imagine again super far in the future where pretty much the humans, the only thing the humans are doing are writing the algorithms that are learning. And setting up the setting up the data, but then everything else, like even you can think of it at, at every part, like the design of the website could even be done by an AI to optimize for engagement. It would just have, I don't know, some evolutionary algorithm that tweaks different things at different points and then does its automatic A-B testing all the way down to how it's the business logic is done to optimize for, I don't know, communication between all those people. And a really important paragraph that I thought you put in the post was 
figuring out exactly what you're optimizing for. And that really is the hardest question. You had an example in there from YouTube's and, and Google generally's hard lesson learned from optimizing only for engagement. Like how are we like it, it does seem like there probably would be some sort of field in the future that is knowing exactly what what the objective should be. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the, the your choice of objective is by far the most important question that you're faced with. And again, this is this is not a technology question, but this is more of a like business slash product question slash what are the outcomes that we're looking to drive? And you started hinting at whether there's going to be a separate field to think specifically about these questions. And I think there are folks who are starting to think about these questions. I don't necessarily agree with how they're thinking about these questions. And I'm thinking specifically about the AI ethics community or people focused on these types of questions. I think sometimes it's a little bit too like agenda driven to be, to actually be solved, be, be answering these types of questions. But I, I do think that if you're developing systems that are, you know, touching interacting with millions of people and have all these feedback loops and potential impacts on society. It is very important to be uh, doing a lot of work and understanding whether the outcomes that your system is achieving align with the outcomes that you wish to achieve and to think through whether the objectives that you wish to achieve are, are actually desirable in some way. And uh, I think this is a very complicated and complex field that's like rife with subjectivity. These are, I'd say, arguably some of the most important questions, but also some of the hardest to answer because there may or may not be a best answer to them. Yeah, for sure. It's, yeah, determining objectives is in, in many ways the entire function of management in general. Yeah, it's, it is not in, definitely not an easy question. And the, in general, the, uh, I don't know if you listen to, the ML Street Talk podcast with uh, Yannick Kelcher, Tim Scarf, those people. But they had a recent episode where they were talking about prompt engineering, about how GPT-3 is like, in, because you have, it's a few shot learning. So you have to know exactly what to give it to later on be able to know what the output of that should be. And it's so interesting to think about how you might have certain jobs in the future that are that whose only role is to monitor the the machines and monitor the models and get them to do yeah to do what you want. In Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in when they ask deep thought questions, it's you have this incredible intelligence and your role as a human is to actually know exactly what you want from it. Yeah, I think that's. I don't have much hope that would be possible. To be completely honest, and just a simple, I think a simple example of that is, or not even a simple example, but. If we just think through what we're trying to do, we're ideally trying to build machines that are better at humans at doing certain tasks. But if you ask most humans how they came to a decision, they can't even tell you. And they may give you an answer, but it's most likely just not the case. So if we can't do it ourselves, if I can't explain to you why I made a particular decision, why should I expect to be able to interrogate an algorithm and understand exactly why all but the simplest sort of algorithms and be able to understand exactly why those decisions were made. I, I think that's a little bit of a, I think that's a little bit of a, a futile exercise. Now we're like really talking about like far out stuff, but I would probably say to, to some extent, these things are just going to do optimizations and we want to spend more of our time just thinking through whether we're optimizing for the right things than trying to understand exactly why the algorithm is giving us uh, the particular output it's giving us. But people will 
this is a, like a, maybe a controversial uh, position to hold. Given that it is obviously the future is incredibly uncertain, the fast times that we're moving in, it do you think that it's so far out there that the vision of that future is something that is so impractical to think about in terms of what how people should try and orient their careers? Or do you think the general directional impact of you should probably know something about machine learning is sufficient? I think definitely at the end of the day, you should let your, your interest and curiosities drive uh, a lot of your education. If you're picking up a book just because you might be picking up a book just because it'll get you further in your career, but whether or not you'll, you'd actually want to read that book otherwise is a very important thing to consider. We only have so many years on the planet, so I don't think people should spend too much time doing things that they don't really want to do. But if you do find the work interesting and find machine learning and data science interesting, I think some knowledge of that is very useful for people in all kinds of careers, and especially within technology. I've shared a number of blog posts written by designers about how designers have interacted with ML systems and ML teams. And I think there's a lot, user interface has a huge impact and huge role to play in the types of ML systems that you can build. So designers have plenty of ability to, to get into this field. I think clearly DevOps folks have a lot they can contribute in terms of this term of ML ops and improving the operational aspects, bringing things like CICD to machine learning. I think there's a lot that both DevOps people can learn from machine learning people and ML people can learn from DevOps people. Obviously, it's typical software engineers, traditional software engineers, business folks, product managers. I think all of these folks would benefit from some understanding of ML from a career perspective. Whether or not I think all of these people will be doing sort of that type of work across industries and across companies. I think there's a lot of variance there. So depending on the type of industry, if you're working within tech, you have a pretty you know high likelihood of, you have a higher likelihood of interfacing with folks who are solving machine learning problems than you do if you're working maybe in, in some uh, other industries. Depending on, on what you're interested in, I would say depending on what you're interested in and the industry that you are in or hope to be in, there is the potential to really profit from some understanding of these concepts and for someone who is already has like a machine learning slash software engineering background, do you th- what would be more emphasized in in terms of what they should learn? So I guess I'm asking very sh- selfishly for me, and I'm very early on in my career. And there's we talked about there's so many different things that you can learn in in the stack of building ML products. Like where do you what do you think are going to be the most valuable skills? Yeah, again, I would say start with your, your, what's, what you're interested in. If you're, I think if you're interested in going more of like the engineering route, you should focus on a particular set of things versus if you're going more of the business route, you should focus on a particular other set of things. My Another friend of mine, Emmanuel Amison, he wrote a, a pretty popular book, I think Building ML-Powered Applications. And he had a nice blog post or, or I forgot exactly what blog post it was, but he spoke about the, the essentially like a split between data scientists and ML engineers, where ML engineers are more focused on the engineering questions and can profit more from understanding sort of software engineering. Whereas data scientists really need to understand the business much more. If that's the sort of split that you want to think about things in the, in the which you want to think about things. And I think like I've spent much more time recently learning, you know, about business concepts about achieving particular outcomes about leading teams because I'm managing the department 
about project management because I'm managing machine learning projects and they're, they're very different from sort of software projects. And to some extent, that was uh, curiosity driven. And to another extent, that was also driven by me deciding to go into management rather than to focus on becoming like an individual contributor. So I would say step one is figure out what you like to do. And you're not going to go wrong in spending time as much time as you want there because you'll only satisfy yourself more. Step two is once you figure that out, try to focus on a lot of the skills I would say that are not traditionally contained within ML engineering or data science. Because I think if you're a decent enough data scientist or ML engineer, Peter Thiel has this concept of like competition being a bad thing. And if you really want to advance yourself in your career, do you want to be really like competing with the top researchers at Google in terms of algorithms? That was something I used to spend a lot of time thinking about. Oh, I need to understand these algorithms better than everybody else. And I think for the most part, that was just wasted time because most importantly, I don't really care about algorithms too much. But second is if I want to be advancing my career, I don't want to be competing at a cutthroat level with people who have PhDs and have spent like years doing this work because they really enjoy it. I would rather, I'd rather develop cross-disciplinary skills because you're much more likely to be rare if you have a set of interdisciplinary skills than you are by being a specialist into one area. And somebody like Scott Adams also has this perspective, right? Where get, get decently good at a, a number of different things and no one is going to be like you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in Peter Thiel, I think it's actually in his, in the Blake Masters original notes that turned into zero to one, Thiel had a, a section, at least on your building, your personal monopoly in your career where you want to, yeah, differentiate yourself. There's a pretty common career framework in terms of like skills where you have, you want to be T-shaped, where you have the minimum spanning set of skills to be able to, I don't know, put something into production. And then you go really deep into one. Do you think that's a decent way of, of looking at it? I mean, I think that's a way of looking at it. I'm, I'm opposed to any of these types of models because I don't think any, everything applies to everybody. So I'm, I'm, I would rather do be driven by my curiosity and interest than I would by what somebody else says, how somebody else says I should be uh, in order to maximize like something that they care about. So if you want to be really deep in one area and have a broad skill set in others, that's fine. Or maybe you want to be deep in two areas. Who am I to say that you shouldn't be deep in two areas? I think, I think just being self-reflective is most important. If you find that you're spending a lot of time, if you find that you're not enjoying what you're doing, then it doesn't matter if you're T-shaped or if you're W-shaped or if you're, you're O-shaped, like you just don't spend, you just don't enjoy what you're doing. So it doesn't really matter. If you are enjoying what you're doing, potentially do more of it. But if you're trying to optimize for your income and also curiosity, there's different constraints. So I think it's, it's hard to just put out some general model that will apply to everybody. I think... I think people are a little bit too serious about these things as well, too focused on, oh, I need to do this thing. I need to be the best. I need to, and it, it's good to be focused on achieving goals. I think that's very important, but I would rather have those goals be my own goals than be what somebody else says I should be doing. So if, if you want to be T-shaped, go ahead. If I think I try to solve the problems that come up in my life. So I, I started talking about deployment because I was dealing with deployment problems, but if I was a landscaper, 
I probably wouldn't give a shit about deployment problems and machine learning. Focusing a bit on like the problems that actually come up and trying to solve those as well as possible. I just have this concept of like excellence. Whatever I do, I just want to be very excellent at it because that's what I enjoy doing. Work on a couple of things, work on the things that you enjoy doing and then solve the problems that arise within those things and just solve them very well, or at least work hard to solve them. That's a really great answer. Yeah. I'm probably overthinking a lot of these things, like you said. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is, and, and I say this only because I've gone through the exact same thing. I spent years thinking I needed to read like the most complicated machine learning books in order to be, have a good position in the field. And then at some point I realized I don't use most of this stuff at all. Have, have, I'd say folk, spend a little bit more time trying to have fun during the actual study or during the work and you'll, your quality of life will probably be a bit higher. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned the not having to keep up if you are more of a, like an engineering focused person, you, yeah, you, like you said, you don't need to be competing with the uh, top PhDs in terms of knowing how the algorithms actually worked. I very recently decided not to do, not to keep up super up to date with like full study art. And I think that was definitely a good decision that saved me a lot of stress. So I, it's given that the audience that's listening to this is mostly people who are trying to put ML into production. Yeah, I would, I would also give that advice as well. Yeah, I mean, I used to get a lot of newsletters. All of these newsletters have the latest and greatest algorithm. And I'd be like, oh, how, can I, how am I going to read all of these things and, and learn from them? And now I just delete them. Now, I, I don't, now, as soon as I see like anything about state of the art, I'm, most likely, I'm more than likely not like going to just delete that email. And I, I, I definitely, I don't feel like I'm suffering. <laughs> yeah. Going back to Josh Tobin in the episode, he said that you really want to see what has been persistent, what models have, what were the papers that are just like always being used and you don't need to, you can just chill a little bit and learn things that continue to be useful. Right. Yeah. This is a Lundy's effect, right? The thing, the things that have persisted over time, if something new emerges today, more likely than not, it's not going to be here tomorrow. So don't spend too much time thinking about it today. But maybe if that thing emerges today and, and two years from now, it's like the thing that everybody's still using, uh, that tells you you should probably learn something about it. But linear regression has been used for a long time. And uh, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. And random forests solve a surprisingly large amount of problems yeah. that you run into. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think you can get pretty far with, like I said, knowledge of a pretty limited subset of all these algorithms. So you started the blog, you talked a little bit about it earlier on. You're just trying to solve the problems that you're facing and put it out there for, for a lot of people who also are presumably facing the, those same problems is you wrote on your, on the piece that I particularly really enjoyed as a fellow content creator about how you had trouble thinking about you had to put more resistance of putting things out there about having, knowing if you had anything meaningful to contribute. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what you've learned since then, having run the blog that's been fairly successful? Sure. Yeah, I, I will say that one of the things, one of the ideas or self-beliefs that blocks me from putting out content earlier was that I didn't really have anything meaningful to say or that whatever I said was people already knew or, or wouldn't find value. And I, I think to some extent that's still true, right? And some, not everybody's going to profit um, or benefit from reading what I have to write, but I think a lot of people will, right? And you just don't know the reality. You have some idea of what people 
understand or, or what people who are similar to you understand or close to you may understand, but you really have no idea how something that you write or record or create will benefit most of humanity. I started putting out some blog posts and I was actually fairly surprised within a couple of weeks at the number of visitors to my blog and then my ranking on Google for particular articles. And um, I'm not saying that's how you should lead your life by trying to optimize for those things, but it was pretty surprising to me because I, I, within a couple of, of weeks, a few months, I, was, I had like tens of thousands of people visiting the blog and I, w- I was not at all expecting that. So I think letting yourself be surprised setting yourself up to be surprised is a good sort of idea. Don't think that everything because you don't. And and, and that applies to these areas that can, you know, really benefit you. And by continuing to write and put out pieces, I saw that people were actually benefiting a lot from my personal experiences. Some people were relating to them. And actually a lot of the things I've written most recently actually really aligned with what's happening to me in my day to day. So previously I used to spend more time writing about concepts that I had to spend time brainstorming. Oh, I want to write about this topic and maybe I've had some experience with it. Maybe not. Maybe I have to do some research, but now I'm actually spending more time just writing about things that occur to me every day in my job. And I'm finding that I'm getting more feedback, more positive feedback on those things, more people emailing, replying to my newsletter and saying, Hey, I have this exact same experience. Do you have any advice for me? Or, Hey, I really relate to this or, Hey, this was great. I didn't know other people were experiencing the same thing, but it took me a while to get to that point, right? Where I was comfortable writing about my personal experiences. And I think an important lesson is, first of all, set up the right initial condition. And by the initial condition, I'm like, let yourself be surprised, but then you need to be consistent because you won't discover these things unless you keep putting things out, putting yourself out there. So those are two important lessons. Let yourself be surprised and and be consistent because if you write one blog article once a year, there's just not enough data there for you to be able to learn these lessons. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. And you, that message particularly resonated a lot with me because I'm yeah very comfortable doing these interviewing other people, but uh, not necess- still not necessarily with uh, sharing, I guess, like with my own personal experiences. So something I'm still working with. And to start to wrap this up, is there anything that you think people or that a question that no one ever asks you, but you wish that they would? A question that no one ever asks me, but I wish that they would. Or a topic that you think you don't talk enough about, get to talk enough about? I think there's a lot of topics I like to talk about that are not machine learning related. But no, for the most part, machine learning, people tend to ask me a lot of great questions. So I'm, I'm more often than not surprised by the types of questions that people ask me because uh, they get me to think about things in a sort of different way. Or again, are, are things that... I, if I were to offer them myself, I think are that interesting, but really forced me to think. So I think a lot of the questions you've asked have have been uh, really great. Now I have some rapid fire questions to ask that I do same ones with all of our guests at the end. And you've, the first one you've talked about burning out in the past. And now in the podcast, you mentioned about how people should probably have some more fun in their lives. So how do you recharge outside of work? What do you do for fun? Yeah, I'd say my the thing I enjoy most is being active. And as much as I enjoy thinking about these technical questions, I would honestly not be able to do this if I wasn't spending time either snowboarding or training MMA. We were just talking about this before the podcast, but 
I spent a lot of time doing striking in the past couple of years, specifically uh, Muay Thai, Thai boxing, kickboxing. And now I'm getting started out with uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So if I find out when I'm doing those activities, I'm totally in the moment and not at all thinking about, right? Because if, if I'm not thinking, if I'm not in the moment, I'm getting punched in the face and that's not fun. That really gives me sort of the, the cleans me out to some extent, right? Like when, when I'm doing those things, I need to be totally in the moment and I'm giving myself just the rest to not think about work-related topics because I find that unless I'm doing some activity, I really just bias myself to thinking about work and that leads to a lot of just fatigue. So being active and being active has just so many health benefits. Mm -hmm. And I think for MMA and jujitsu specifically, people think that it's, they're going to go in and it's just like a bunch of hulks and macho guys like just punching each other but i implore people to try it out it's uh, a lot more nerds than you would think yeah i used to think before i did it and i didn't do it growing up it was only the last couple of years i started i used to think that it was just a bunch of meatheads and uh, i quickly figured out just how mental of a sport it really is and how how beneficial it has been to me in so many areas outside of uh, fighting or, or training yep yep next is what book or books do you most often recommend to other people, technical or non-technical? Yeah, I think one book, I read so many books, but I rarely recommend books to people because I think I just read things that I'm interested in. One book I really liked is The War of Art by, I forgot his name now. Yeah, Stephen Pressfield. I, I really enjoyed that book. And I would say one book that really got me to think very differently was uh, Sapiens by Noel Harari. So those are books that I, I guess were like pretty mind opening uh, to me and, and I really enjoy them. One of my favorite books recently that I read was How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollack. So highly recommend those books to everybody. Is there a use case or application for machine learning that you think is overlooked? Yeah, I, I, tabular data. Uh, tabular data is what most companies have, regardless of like whether they're working on computer vision or not. They probably still have a lot of tabular data. So I think more emphasis on that problem would, would lead to just the, the greatest value add across companies. Yeah, yeah. it seems like all the deep learning stuff, it's for all the complex data, yep. images, videos, and yeah. Yeah, and that stuff's, very, and that stuff's like clearly important, but I think small to medium-sized tabular data sets, you know, yeah. that's, the, that's where the money's at. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to someone just entering the field? Don't take yourself too seriously would be probably number one. Don't focus on trying to keep up with everything. Uh, the thing is, you know, things are fast. Things are quickly changing and you just don't know what will be important in the near future. So mostly focus on getting, focus on the fundamentals and just focus on learning what the business actually cares about because that will take you further in your career than most likely take you further in your career than trying to understand how transformers work and how BERT works and how Excel BERT works and how GP3T works. I, I, I think to some extent, but there are people who need to work on those problems, but most people don't. Yeah, totally. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? So I can give a machine learning related answer and a non-machine learning related answer. Whichever one you think is more contrarian. I would say your entire life can be viewed through the lens of exploration versus exploitation in the sense of you can either keep doing the things that you already know to work 
or you can try out new things that you haven't done before, which may not work, but which may work better than the things you've already tried. You need to, and this is a hard problem. It's how much of each to do in your day to day, but know that either end of this extreme of the spectrum is probably not the most optimal way of living your life. And you can apply this to sort of everything like your career or your, your relationships or your, the things that you do, your hobbies, there needs to be some mix of introducing randomness into what you do in day to day and also doing what you do really well. So one way that you can apply that to your career is you may not like love the job that you're in. Maybe you want to do something, you think the grass is greener. You want to do something that's a bit more exciting, but like your job is paying the bills and that's pretty valuable. It may not be more valuable than other things, but that is a factor you should consider. And you're more likely to think about all the possible positives in a new job than you are to think about the possible negatives in the new job. Exploration versus exploitation is an interesting way of interesting thought process to view different areas of your life through. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating answer and a really great place to end it there since because that was so interesting. Your blog, of course, is mlinproduction.com, and I really do implore everyone to go and read it. I think the target audience is literally exactly the type of people that want to read your blog. And you have an excellent newsletter as well, just a pretty short, a few links and some of your own personal experiences down at the bottom, which are always super fascinating. So is there a direct-to-newsletter landing page that people can go to? Yeah, I mean, just go to mlinproduction.com, and you should be able to click on newsletter there. And I've just started actually posting my most recent newsletters there so if you don't want to sign up you can if you want to before signing up you want to see some examples the most recent ones are there and signing up is just a great way to to have that sense directly to your inbox i really appreciate you having me on the show charlie yeah this was really fun thanks you so much awesome thank you thank you so much for listening It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.